Well, good morning. Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, being human and how that can change your life. Specifically today, we're going to talk about being made in the image of God. You know, uh, we've had a lot of confusion these days as to what it means to be a man, what it means to be a, a woman, uh, what it means to really even be human. Well, God is not silent on this issue. Uh, God is the one who created us. He's the one who gives us direction. He's the one who set the rules, if you will. He's the one that established the boundaries. And he's the one that knows what's best for us, for our own good. We read, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, in this very first verse that we read, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man. This is very significant because it proves to us, it shows us that you and I are people of significance. We are creatures of great significance. Why does it teach us this? Well, look at how God created the rest of creation. And, and give you a couple of examples in verse 20 of this uh, same chapter. God said, let the waters teem with, storm, with swarms of uh, living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God is saying, let this occur. In verse 24, God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And so in all these other instances, God says, let this happen. Allow this to happen. But here, in verse 26, God doesn't say, let these humans come forth. He says something different. God says, let us make man. You know, to be sure, God created everything. I mean, that should be obvious to us. If God didn't speak something into being, it wouldn't exist. At the same time, when it finally came to the sixth day when God created humans, the persons of the Godhead used the word us. It's as if there was another level involved. It, it was as if God is more personally involved in the creation of humans. You know, God is very personally involved in every aspect of your life, even from the very beginning. God is involved. And God was very intimately involved in the creation of the first humans. I would also point out that when God was creating the world in that first week, there was only one part of creation which warranted prior discussion. Everything else, God said, let it happen. Let there be light. Uh, let the uh, waters swarm with living creatures. Let the air be filled with birds. Let all of these things happen. But here, there's a prior discussion first, before the creation of humans. 
And the persons of the Godhead are having a, a meeting, if you will, and they are saying to one another, this is a good idea, let us do it. There is contemplation going on. There is consideration going on. You know, what that means for us is that we are no accident. You are no accident. Uh, there are no accidental children. There might be accidental parents from time to time, but there are no accidental children. You are no accident. You are more than just another part of creation. You are not just a part of the animal kingdom. You're not just a cog in the machine. There's all these different models of what it means to be a human. Some people say, oh, we're nothing more than the animals. We're no different than the horses or the trees, or you're just an advanced monkey or something like that. No, that's not true. Not according to God. You're more than just part of the animal creation. You're more than just a cog in the machine. You might feel insignificant because there are so many humans or the earth is so big or the universe is so vast. You might somehow feel insignificant, but God says that's not true. You're more than just a cog in the machine. You are very intentionally, very deliberately created by God himself. God himself was intimately involved as he lovingly and carefully made every part of you, both body and spirit. The big picture is this. The one and only God of the universe was personally and deliberately involved in the creation of humans. This is something God got himself into, that God was moving and working and deliberating and deciding to do this. The simple conclusion of this is that you're significant. You know, if the God of the universe is personally involved in our creation, he's intimately involved in our creation, he decides to create us and then he acts on it and he carries it out and he, and he says what, he's about, what we're about to read, the only conclusion we can come to is that God has a big plan for us, and he wants you to be a part of that plan. And so it, it includes us. We don't want to miss out on God's plan. The verse continues. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This has been debated over uh, uh, thousands of years about what it means to be created in the image of God. Uh, Very succinctly, what it essentially means is this. We are God's royal representatives in the world. God has left this earth with kingly representatives, people or creatures that represent him to the rest of the world, and that's what humans are. We are God's royal representatives in this world. We're the only part of God's creation that is made in his likeness. Scripture says that humans are a living soul. It also says that animals are a living soul. But animals are not made in the image of God. To be a living soul simply means that we have a life spirit about us, that we're alive. There's something living about us and so animals qualify for that but animals are not made in the image of God only humans are there's something incredibly different and unique between us and the animals and so we're much more than just the animal kingdom or part of the animal kingdom only humans are called the image of God 
We're different than the animals. We are the rulers over the animals and over creation itself. Some people might say, well, can the image of God simply mean that, you know, we're more intelligent than the animals or that we can speak languages or maybe that we have a spiritual aspect to our lives? Well, all those things may be true, but uh, let me tell you exactly why specifically being made in the image of God means that you and I collectively are the king's representatives in this world. And here's why. If you go back and you reread the entire chapter of uh, Genesis chapter 1, the whole chapter conveys the idea of God as king over his creation. He's the one who creates it. He's the one that rules over it. Nothing happens unless he says it can happen. And everything that he says should happen does happen. God is the king. He's the Lord. He's the ruler over it. And by the very end of the chapter, what has God done? After he's created everything, God creates one more thing, and it's his royal representatives to rule over this creation. He grants, God grants his authority as king to humans. Verse 26 continues, it says, And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God not only said this is what should happen, but God gave the specific command to Adam and to Eve, to fill the earth and to subdue the earth. And so we are God's royal representatives on the earth. Let me give you a few implications of this. Number one, God created us to work. There's something spiritual about working. God worked and he expects his royal representatives to work. In fact, you know that God spent six days working and rested on another day, on the seventh day. That should be our pattern. You know, you cannot exercise dominion over something unless you work. When a person refuses to work, he's harming himself. He's diminishing his own sense of self-worth. God expects us to be productive. He created you to accomplish something and to be responsible for something. And for us as Christians, we are part of his spiritual kingdom. There is a job for each one of us to do, not only in the natural world, the physical world, not only doing something where you're making a living or you're creating something for society, but also in the spiritual kingdom, there's a job for you to do as well. You're part of God's kingdom. You recognize God as the ruler over your life, as the Lord over your life. You've submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has given you something that he wants you to accomplish in his church and in his kingdom. And so it's my job as a pastor to equip you to carry out the ministry that God has given you to do. It's your job to carry it out and to do that. God expects us to work. He also expects us to manage and to develop and care for his creation. That's what God means when he says subdue the creation. Subdue the creation does not mean tear it up. Subdue the creation does not mean uh, do anything you want and there's no responsibility for it. But to subdue, to have dominion over creation, means that we manage it. It means that we develop it. It means that we care for it. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, Scripture says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. 
And you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. You see, as humans, when you and I properly develop and we care and we manage God's creation, who's the one that benefits? Well, we are. We benefit when we treat his creation properly and when we develop it. Some people think that being an environmentalist means that you never develop anything and that we all live like savages naked out in the forest. No, that's not what being an environmentalist means. God is the original environmentalist. He created the environment and he put us as a part of it. By the way, everything that you do as a human, whether it's good or bad, you are part of the environment. And so don't ever get fooled into thinking that the environment is something other than you. It's not. We are a part of the environment, and we are to care for and develop the environment for our own benefit and for the glory of God. I think it can be for the glory of God when a bridge is built, and people can connect with one another. I think it can be for the glory of God when a, a building is built, when a highway is built, when development takes place. This is a part of creating and, or part of developing the creative gifts that God has given us. And when we benefit ourselves and when we take seriously this uh, role that we have to manage and develop and care for God's creation, not only are we the ones who benefit, but God is the one who's glorified. And that's the way it always works. When God is glorified, he always shares the benefits with us. And so it's a good thing to subdue, to have dominion over the earth if we understand what that means. A third implication of being made in the image of God is this. God will hold us accountable for how we ruled as his royal representatives. He's going to hold us accountable. You know, you go to a store someday, and the person, uh, if something goes wrong, you might want to talk to the manager of the store, the manager of the restaurant. Uh, but that manager, unless it's also the owner, has someone that he has to answer to. The manager of the store might rule the store, but he's going to have to give an account to the owner at the end of the day. That's the way it is with us and God's creation and how we rule as God's royal representatives. God is the owner, we are the managers, and so we need to keep that in mind. A fourth implication is this, and this is, the, I think, my favorite one. It is your destiny to rule. It is your destiny to be in charge of something. Listen to what the other end of the Bible says. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who's that talking about? Well, it's talking about us. We came to life and we did what? We reigned with Christ. We ruled with Christ. What an incredible benefit that we don't deserve. We know that when Christ returns, he's going to reign. He's going to rule. He's the king. But guess what? He allows us to reign with him. We came to life and we ruled, we reigned for a thousand years. Revelation 22, verse 5, even after that, it says, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Who? Who will reign forever and ever? The angels? No. You and me. We are going to reign forever and ever. 
You were made to rule. You were made to run things. And, uh, and so this is practice for what's going to happen in the future. And so it's your destiny to rule. Now, verse 27, we come to a, a, a verse that I uh, never thought would be that controversial, but these days it is. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Now, I never thought I'd have to discuss this at length uh, like we're about to, but God created two sexes, males and females. This may be a shock to some people in our political system. But God created two sexes, male and female. And I, I honestly never thought I'd see the day the people's minds would be so depraved that the quantity of sexes in the creative order would be up for debate. But that's exactly where we are. You know, it's become very popular now to fight for the rights of people who are confused as to whether they are male or female. Now, I want us to be completely... Uh, fair uh, to these people that are confused as to whether they are male or female. And for us to be fair to them, we need to understand where they're coming from. And so please understand this, that uh, these people that are the uh, uh, transgender activists and other uh, kind of activists like this, they distinguish sex from gender identity. Now you and I may not think, have ever thought this through. At some point we came to the realization that I'm a man or I'm a woman, one or the other. You probably came to that realization at some point. And you were fine with it. And that's the way God intended you to be. But these people distinguish between the two. They say that sex is your physiological traits of being male or female. But they say, on the other hand, gender identity is how you view yourself with regard to sexuality. And how you view yourself may not conform to how you were made. And so with this distinction in their minds and this distinction in mind, to them, you might identify as a male or as a female or as whatever other classification you want to come up with. You know, President Obama's administration has issued what they call guidance to school districts. The basic administration edict is very clear, and I'm reading from a National Review article that's entitled, President Obama's Transgender Proclamation is Far Broader and More Dangerous Than You Think. It says that this edict that they have issued to the school district, school districts, interprets federal law to require schools to create a safe, non-discriminatory, and, and even supportive environment for transgender students. You see, creating gender-neutral access to bathrooms or showers represent mere examples of how schools comply with the edict. In other words, the edict that came forth from Washington is very broad, has a very broad principle of non-discrimination, what they call, and bathroom access is just one very narrow application of that broad edict. 
there are some implications that I want to spell out for you. First of all is this. The very act of teaching biology and human physiology will be called hate speech unless it is conformed to the new transgender facts that are out there, that gender identity does not have to conform with sexuality. So in other words, teachers will have to take great care, great pains to note that chromosomes, reproductive organs, hormonal systems, and any other physical marker of sex is irrelevant to this thing called gender, which they claim is just a mere state of mind. And so the teachers who don't ascribe to their interpretation of all of these issues will be under attack. Secondly, if there are any statements of dissent from either teachers or students, that will be treated as anti-science, that will be treated as discriminatory, it will be considered contributing to a hostile environment that schools are legally bound to prohibit. This prohibition will go well beyond the use of pronouns and into discussions of what it means to be male and female. Third, and this is where it affects us, public schools will now be even further opposed doctrinally and legally to Orthodox Christianity. Christian parents who send their children to public schools need to be aware of this because those students will be taught not only that their churches are factually wrong in their assessments of sex and gender, but those churches are actually bigoted and hateful. These churches and pastors and Sunday school teachers are actually comparable to white supremacists or Nazis because they are engaging in hate speech saying that someone's gender identity should conform to their actual sexuality. Fourth, the administration's actions set a key political precedent. Federal funding is now clearly and unmistakably an instrument of national control. When the federal government started sending money to the schools decades ago, everyone loved it. Hey, free money. But guess what? Now it's an issue of control. And finally, because the administration's edict is tied to funding, civil disobedience cannot block its enforcement. In other words, state officials or local officials, they can defy the edict all they want, but unless a court rules in their favor, the administration, all they have to do to pull this off is to simply stop a transfer of funds into the school district's bank account. This places citizens of dissenting states in the unenviable position of either complying which sacrifices their kids' liberty and safety or defying and seeing cash-strapped schools lose millions of dollars in public support, all the while we'll continue to pay our taxes in order to fund progressive states and school districts in transforming the United States and transforming kids' minds into this nonsense. Unless schools can declare their full and complete independence from federal funding, they will continue to face escalating pressure from the federal government to use their class classrooms to transform American culture and values. Even federal dollars granted by a future Republican or conservative administration can be used as leverage by the next 
Democrat president. Why? Because funding always means control. And so this will be a huge political fight. The article concludes by saying the left has barely begun to fight. And the article is absolutely right. You see, God did not create one sex. He did not create three sexes. God created two sexes. And there is no place in God's order for any diminishing of sexual identity or any confusion of sexual identity. Even if someone is born with some type of uh, physical abnormality, it doesn't change the fact that they are born either male or female. Your sexuality as a male or female is absolutely sacred. It is as sacred as any other part of anything that you're born with. God made you that way. It is a part of God's creativity and it's one of the very things that makes you completely unique from half the population of the world. Just as there are obvious physical differences between males and females, there are also spiritual differences between males and females. We have different roles and responsibilities in the home and in the church. You know, this, this idea that there's spiritual differences between males and females, it, it makes some people very upset. They claim that a, a, a woman can do anything that a man can do and that a man can do anything that a woman can do. And that's, that's just nonsense. It's not even... Uh, doesn't even rise to the level of being sensible in any kind of fashion. It's absolutely not true. A woman can never be an adequate father. And a man can never be an adequate mother. The very best situation for a child is to have two parents of opposite sexes in the home. And if one parent is missing in the home, God can absolutely grant an extra measure of grace to that family. Others can step in, like the church, and, and try to fill that void and give that uh, fatherless child a, a, a model, an example, someone that they can look up to, a big brother, if you will, that they can look up to. And the church absolutely should be involved in that. But there's always going to be something missing. There will always be something missing. Single mothers and single fathers are at a very hard disadvantage simply because they are not a one flesh union of a male and female serving their children and that's where the church can come in and provide extra support to those families that are missing a parent but we cannot do that if we don't admit the facts that a child should have a father and a mother if somehow we think that Having a father out of the home or having a mother out of the home is just, eh, it's normal. It's no big deal. Kids are, you know, adaptable. They'll just overcome. It's not a big deal. They won't have issues to deal with. It's, then if we can't admit the simple facts that both a father and a mother are the best situation for a child to be raised in, then, uh, then we will certainly not take action to minister to single mothers and fathers and provide them with what they need. You see, God made the man and the woman perfect complements of each other. There are things that a man uh, is missing in his spirituality that a woman has in hers, and vice versa. And so a child needs both a man and a woman. That's the optimal situation. God obviously can grant extra 
grace to those families that are missing that. The man and the woman, we can see obviously through their physical makeup that they are perfect complements of each other physically, but also spiritually. And this is where the church can come in. This is where the church can be a witness to testify to the spiritual nature of being male and the spiritual nature of being female and why God in his wisdom when he created the world he said let us make man in our image male and female he created them.